I'm trying to get harder and tougher mentally and physically every day of my life. You're either the growth mindset or you're the fixed mindset. If you're trying to be the best, you need to look at who the best is and see what they do. Relentless pursuit of progress. There's a difference between the best and the rest. And the rest. Welcome to the Michael Katz Podcast. Champions are built in the morning first. Where we interview scientists, world champions, doctors and experts, in just about every area of health and fitness. What do you care enough about? What are you fascinated enough about to go so deep and learn so much that you'll know more about it than anyone else? And now, here's your host, Michael Cashew. Hey, and welcome. Today I'm interviewing a good buddy of mine named Nat Eliason. Nat is a writer, blogger, entrepreneur. He created something called the Stamina App, which helps men last longer in bed. He is the CEO and founder of a company called Growth Machine, which helps companies with SEO. And he's also created a productivity course called Effortless Output in Rome that I've gone through and is phenomenal. Nat is a prolific writer with hundreds of thousands of visitors to his site monthly, and he just puts out incredible content all over the place, like really, really well done, thoughtful stuff on every topic that he chooses to write about. On this episode, we talk about a recent hunting experience that's had a really big impact on him. We talk about how he became a sex expert unintentionally and how he went really deep into that world how to learn most effectively. And this is this topic is what I think I, uh, one, of the, one of the few things I admire most about Nat. He is a, such a curious person and when he decides he wants to learn something, he just absolutely attacks it. He becomes obsessed, he starts teaching about it really quickly and he just seems to really have it figured out. So we go deep on this topic and more. Uh, this was such a fun conversation. Uh, it just sounds like two friends having a good time. So I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, please help me welcome Nat Eliason. Hey, before we get the show started, I want to let you know about a new project I'm working on called Soul Searching Adventures. It's wilderness survival training plus personal development work plus epic outdoor trips for men. The first step of my recovery from drug addiction was a wilderness therapy program. I lived in the desert for over nine weeks. Now, 13 years later, I'm coming full circle and sharing similar experiences with men that want to take one or more areas of their life to the next level. These trips are designed to push you way outside of your comfort zone, both physically and emotionally. And after interviewing dozens of men, it's crystal clear to me that guys are craving feeling more capable and competent in nature and outdoors. They want to know themselves more deeply. They want to form deep, meaningful relationships. If you want to connect more deeply with your mission and your purpose in life, then these trips are for you. If you want more clarity about the right next step for you in your relationship or career, this is for you. If you want to be challenged in every way possible for yourself, I'd love to have you. And you can apply for the next trip at soulsearchingadventures.com. You don't need to have any outdoor experience whatsoever. You simply need an open mind. Head to soulsearchingadventures.com for more info and apply now. Let's get this show started. 
Nat, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's a pleasure, man. So let's talk about your hunting trip. And let me give people a little bit of context. So Nat and I have a mutual friend named Monzel Denton. He owns a company called Sacred Hunting. And Nat went on an elk trip, an elk hunting trip in Colorado. And what happened? Dude, it was pretty crazy. I mean, so first of all, I'd never done a hunt on this level. I'd gone hunting once in Texas before, also with Monsel for deer and boar. And that was you know incredible experience. I highly recommend it to anyone who has the opportunity to do it. And then he said he was going to do this elk hunting trip. And he hadn't organized one on this scale yet either. So it's kind of like an exciting learning experience for everyone. And when he told me about it, I was like, can I swear on this podcast or is this... You may. You I may. <laughs> Wonderful. I was like, all right, fuck yeah, I'm in. Let's go. Uh, signed up. And <clears throat> it was clear it was going to be this pretty intense experience because going to be up at altitude, you know, between nine and 10,000 feet, hiking a few miles through the snow every day. Uh, if we get something, you know, those can be four or five, 600 pound animals. So butchering and packing that out is just like everything about is on this completely new level. And we had to level up our like riflery marksmanship and all of that to quite a bit, uh, quite a bit more advanced than what you have to do, like sitting in a blind in Texas. Mm -hmm. So even before we went on the trip, it was kind of this incredible thing where I got to dig a lot deeper into, uh, just, you know, getting really precise and learning how to be like a very responsible hunter, responsible shooter. Uh, Monsel had Monsel hired this incredible local guy, Clay, who's a former Navy SEAL and Marine sniper to teach us how to become better marksmen with our rifles and dial all of that in, uh, and kind of like getting to do all this prep. And then we actually go on the trip and, you know, for, uh, the first couple of days, I was actually, I drove up to Colorado, which the first part of it going through Northwestern Texas has got to be some of the most boring driving imaginable, where it's just like flat, boring land. And then you get into Colorado and you've got these incredible mountains popping up and you're starting to see snow and weather's changing. And I started seeing like deer and other animals. Along I like how you too. completely skip over Oklahoma. You don't even mention it because it's so shitty to drive through. I didn't go through it. In my oh, did you not? I didn't know. Okay. <laughs> I, did, I, did, I did Texas and then like a tiny bit through New Mexico okay, and then got it. Colorado, uh, which was actually kind of crazy because it was like Texas. There's basically like a lot of rural Texas seems to still be pretending that COVID just doesn't exist. And then New Mexico, like the whole state is on this crazy lockdown. So as really? you drive in, yeah, there were like all these signs and warnings and uh, like it was literally just the minute you come across the border, it completely changed, which I thought was so interesting because it's like, all right, so somebody who lives, you know, five minutes to either side of this border has a very different experience over the last six months. And then getting into Colorado, uh, it was interesting because in like the big cities is pretty strict, but then out where we were, it was a lot more chill again, but it got to kind of like drive through, see all that beautiful scenery. And then we get to where we're staying. And so we, we get to this incredible, this incredible lodge kind of like surrounded by mountains on all sides. Uh, I've got a bunch of pictures of it in my like article on the trip on my site. And we're staying there for uh, four or five days. And for three days, it's like two hunts a day. So we're getting up at four 30. We're uh, putting all our gear on, we're getting into the cars, we're going out to this huge ranch that we're hunting on. And then within the ranch, we're kind of separated into groups of two with a guide. So I was hunting with uh, Chris Marhefka, who I don't know if you've had him on the podcast or not, no. but obviously mutual friend of ours now. And he and I were with our guide, Josh. <clears throat> and the way they do the hunting out there is so uh, it's kind of crazy and so different from here because you've got these old Jeeps 
with snow chains and you know a couple hundred thousand miles on them and you're like grand theft auto swerving (laughs) up the side of this mountain on these crazy dirt roads trying to get to a good vantage point before like the car slips into a ditch uh i'd literally never seen driving like this it was wild and every every hunt or was kind of this experience of like okay we're gonna go to a place we're gonna hike around a little bit try to get to a good vantage point uh, try to spot any elk or spot some tracks, then follow the tracks, try to find them, see where they're bedded down. Uh, it was so much more involved than like sitting in a blind or just walking around in the brush in Texas. And the, I mean, the very first hunt that we went out, it was just blizzarding. Like we didn't even get out of the Jeep. We we got up to our vantage point and we couldn't see 20 yards ahead of us. And so we're, <laughs> we're literally just sitting in there, like talking to each other, you know, going on Instagram, whatever, hoping the snow is going to break and it never does. So we go home. Uh, our other friend, Austin Bronner, he, he, he and his guide actually got out of the Jeep and they like went to their vantage point and they sat and he said by the end of it, they were all covered in like two or three inches of snow. And of course, like the elk don't want to come out in that either. So, you know, hunt one was a bust. Uh, hunt two, you know, I didn't get anything. Every like we saw a lot of elk, uh, and we unfortunately wounded one that we ended up tracking through kind of like the brush and over these mountains, kind of like basically right until sundown. And then she went onto a neighbor's property, which was just the absolute worst case scenario because she you know, she'd been wounded. It looked like it might've been a mortal wound, but we weren't sure. And so we were following her for a while. And then she goes into this neighbor's land and our guides had permission to go into every other neighbor's property around the ranch, except for that one, except this one. So we, we get to where she jumped the fence and we see her tracks going off into there. And me and Chris and Josh are like sitting there in the snow waiting. Josh and the other guides are trying to call this landowner to say, you know, hey, we've got this wounded animal. We need to go get it, right? Like she's probably going to die. Uh, we don't want to like cause any undue suffering here. And the landowner eventually gets back to them and says, no, you can't go get her. And, you know, he said the reason was that they had hunters on the property at the same time. I I don't know. I'm sort of like, okay, but you could just call the hunters and tell them like, hey, leave that area. They need to go retrieve this animal. Like maybe he wanted it for himself. Maybe he was just kind of being a dick. I don't know. Uh, But we were all obviously really upset about that because it's like the worst experience when you injure an animal, uh, when you don't get like the perfect shot and then you can't go even retrieve it and, you know, make use of it and respect the animal. So that was a really like unfortunate end to day one. And everyone was feeling kind of like, down and a little more like cautious going into day two, I think. And so we go out on day two and uh, morning hunt. We like go out and we're looking around our vantage points. Don't really see much of anything. Kind of a, a boring morning, honestly. Nobody, I think, I don't think anybody saw anything in any of the groups. And then the second hunt of the day around sunset, we go out and <clears throat> we're, we're hiking out to this vantage point. And, you know, me and Chris and Josh are standing up there. We still haven't seen anything all day. And so we're, you know, we're worried like, okay, did the couple of gunshots we had yesterday, like scare everything off? You know, what, where are they? And then we're standing up on this hill for about 45 minutes. And then Josh like whips around and looks at me. He's like, he's right there pointing down the slope. I'm like, what? And 
Josh is like a wizard. I don't understand how he does this because the dude was always on his phone, like on Snapchat or doing something. He he was not looking up and around that often, but it's like he had some weird hunting sense where he just knew when an animal had popped up in our field of view because the minute this elk stepped out of the woods, he spotted her. She was about 200 yards away down this slope from us and she popped out and we had, you know, there was no brush in the way. It was like perfect shot in terms of uh, where she was and where we were, but She'd walked out of the woods and then she turned almost completely away from us. So, you know, 90 degree backside shot, really don't want to take that because it's going to be almost impossible to hit the lungs or the heart. You're probably going to shoot it in like the butt or hit the guts or something and you're just going to injure it. And these animals are so tough, they're just going to run for miles. You know, you might not even kill it with a back shot. So, and this was, there was this interesting tension where, you know, the guides really want you to take a shot because they really want you to get the animal. They want to get their tips, whatever. So he's saying like, take the shot, take the shot, take the shot. And I'm like, no, especially after what happened yesterday, really, really don't want to take this shot. If she leaves, like whatever, uh, or I'm just going to wait until she hopefully turns and gives us that good shot. And so waiting, it was probably 20 seconds. It felt like 10 minutes because I had, <laughs> yes. you know, I had like the rifle on the sticks. I had my eye on the scope, everything. It was like dialed onto her, trying to control my breathing, waiting. Yeah, what's for- going on in your body at this point? Is your heart just pounding? Oh, yeah. I mean, heart's pounding. I'm trying to get into like the best comfortable position possible because, you know, one, we're tired from you know, we did that. We did all that hiking yesterday to track the first elk. We've been hiking a lot today. It's cold out. We've been kind of standing out there in the snow for an hour already. And now you have to try to control your breathing enough to maintain a steady reticle on this elk. And she was about 200 yards away. And we had practiced at 300 yards, but I mean, two football fields is still really far. And, uh, you're, you know, if you've used a scope before, you know, the reticle is just going to dance around more and more the farther out it gets and trying to like keep everything under control so that I would have a good shot if she moved. You know, I was just like solely focused on that and, you know, hoping that she would give us that opportunity. And so standing there, waiting, waiting, waiting. Uh, and then a second one pops out. And the second one comes out 40 yards closer. So, you know, significantly easier to hit. And then she pretty much immediately stops and puts her head down to eat. And she does it at like a perfect broadside, like absolute ideal shooting range position uh, in terms of lining everything up. And it was like, oh, this is this is like a sign from nature, right? It's like you were patient when you had this bad opportunity. And so now you've been rewarded with a good one. So I took the shot. Chris followed up with the shot right after because we didn't want to like take any chances this time. We said, okay, we're both going to take a shot on the same elk. Just make sure that we try to get at least one more round in them so they don't like run off if one of the shots is bad. Uh, and then we follow up with a couple of more trying to get a third on her while she's running, but we miss basically all of them. Um, and then she runs off into the woods, right? And of course, the first thing that's going through my head is like, fuck, we, <laughs> we might have, you know, had a bad hit on both shots. We could have missed on one of them. We didn't totally know. Uh, and she's, she went into the brush and we have no idea, you know, she could be right around the corner. She could be gone. So we, uh, you know, like we grab our rifles and stuff and we run down the hill to try to figure out where she went. And, uh, we kind of come down around this tree and then get this huge moment of relief because she's lying under a tree, probably 20 yards past where we shot her. She didn't go far at all. Mm -hmm. 
So it's like, okay, whew, we actually like we did it right this time. And then she kind of like slowly pops her head up when we get when she can hear us getting a little bit closer. So she you know she's not quite gone yet, but clearly dying soon. And so put a third shot in her from you know much closer range. And while holding, while just like shouldering my rifle, which I hadn't done before, and it kicked up and just like cut open this slice in my forehead that you can oh, see. Shit. Yeah, yeah. That's like a staple uh, on Monzo's events. That's somebody I know, gets it is, Yeah, Jordan's got his. <laughs> no, I've got mine. Uh, it, it all it, it felt a little poetic, right? It was sort of like you know she got me too, but and then she uh, went down, and that was sort of the end of it. So went up, you know, got to say kind of like thank you and spend some time with her. Uh, Chris and Josh went off just to make sure that we didn't like clip the other elk or anything like that. And then, you know, spending time with her and everything. But then it starts getting darker. <laughs> and I had, I had shot her at like 4.20, 4.30. Sunset there is like 5, 5.15. Uh, Chris and Josh have been gone kind of a while. So I'm starting to wonder like, where did they go? What happened? And it's getting darker and darker. And we've got this like 200 pound elk we've got to get off the mountain. And uh, they eventually come back. It turned out we did clip the other elk, but it ended up, this is like a separate story. It ended up being like a very surface level wound. We tracked her for almost two hours the next day. And it was just like a light grazing. She was totally fine, ran off with her calf. Coyotes left her alone. So we felt good about that, that everything was okay with her. Um, but once they got back, then it was like, okay, we have to get this elk off the mountain. And so we're trying to like drag her up. We left all of our packs. We left our sharp knives. We left everything that we needed up in the van. So we've got nothing down there with her. And so we're like trying to drag her up. We eventually are able to get her legs off with like the one really dull, bad knife we have. And after about an hour, thankfully, the rest of the crew shows up. And then it's just like this crazy, surreal experience of all of these guys on the side of this mountain in pitch black. Everyone's like kind of covered in blood and uh but also like you know sharing the experience and like laughing and kind of like bonding uh monsel did led like a really nice ceremony for her as we finished doing the quartering and everything and then i carried her hide with her head still attached back up the mountain that we had you know come down to shoot her and like into the jeep which was surprisingly incredibly heavy i mean their skin is so thick to be able to survive those winters so it was this really intense like physical challenge at the end of a, a pretty challenging day that i i felt like tied the whole experience together uh in a kind of like magical spiritual way so that was i mean ev almost everybody said that that night was their favorite part of the trip because that was unfortunately the only elk we got nobody else right. got one uh and so all of us being on that mountain together going through that process uh, and like taking turns carrying, you know, a leg or the stakes or whatever back up the mountain to the the Jeep was like pretty, pretty surreal and pretty incredible. Oh, that's so epic, man. So something that's been on my mind a lot because I'm starting my own adventures is um, something around men craving being more comfortable outdoors, having more skills. I'm curious what your experience has been like just getting more comfortable with a the outdoors and hunting in particular. How has it impacted hunting, you? Yeah, hunting is interesting because the the first time that I went with Monsol, the first animal I got was a boar, and I convinced one of the guides to sort of teach me how to butcher it uh, that evening, and he and I 
spent what must have been like four hours because I was, you know, so new to it, had no idea what I was doing. Must have been four hours butchering this hog. And what was so interesting about it to me was it felt so natural and it felt so instinctual. Like it was something that part of my brain just knew how to do that I'd never tapped into. And you don't ever have that experience working on a computer, right? Our, our brains didn't evolve with computers. Like we don't, we don't know how computers work. We're just sort of like figuring it out as we go. We, we don't do many things that we have an instinctual like ability for, mm-hmm. right? I, and I've found hunting to really kind of tap into that in a way that I don't know many other uh, experiences do. You know, there's certainly some things like I find like hiking in the wilderness and trying to navigate like some of that definitely taps into it. And I guess like being out in nature does too, but like having a doing something tactical and challenging that's sort of like puzzle solving, but also feels like you already know the answer to the puzzle, even though you've never done it before is a very, very strange experience. And I also find that what looks very, what can look kind of gross and strange removed from the situation feels totally normal and natural in the situation. Like I look at some of these pictures of us butchering the elk and, you know, we've got like our hands inside her rib cage or whatever, or, you know, pulling off like a leg or something. And it, it you look at it, you're just like, Oh, that's really uncomfortable. But when you're, when you're there and you're kind of surrounded by like the smell and tactical feeling of it and the camaraderie or whatever, it feels like something you should be doing. It feels so natural. So that that's why I find the the hunting stuff really interesting is it's not only a way to have a much deeper connection with our food and our environment. It also, I find <laughs> it also opens the door to like understanding yourself mm. better too, or like, and parts of yourself that you don't normally get to tap into. Can you say more about that? You use the word strange to describe the experience. What, what do you feel like you learned about yourself through this? Hmm. I think the biggest lesson is just how detached I am and I I assume most people are from nature and from those things that we are naturally good at in the sense that we we obviously we have these skills and these things we do where you know whether we're podcasting or writing or running a business or whatnot and those are all things that we are good at but they are things that we had to like learn to do. And they're great things to be good at, but there is something kind of like unnatural and perhaps even like unhealthy about it in the way that I think we were talking about this the other day at brunch where there's something about like if you're in if you're in nature surrounded by community doing meaningful work, that is almost like the ultimate key to happiness and like sense of wellness And I've done this thought experiment with a number of people where it's like, who do you think would live longer? The person who's alone in their house working on a laptop, but has like a perfect diet, doesn't drink, sleeps eight hours, has like no polluted air, you know, does everything in the like healthy person checkbook. It was like that person gonna live longer is the person who is like hanging out outdoors with a big group of friends, like being social, has a family, but you know, maybe like drinks alcohol, smokes, doesn't eat that super clean of a diet. And I'm like super inclined to say like the second person is not only going to end up being healthier, but also significantly happier. Right. Right. 
and it's kind of like these, uh, there are these big stones in wellness and in uh, sense of well-being that are much harder to implement, like being outside for multiple hours a day. Uh, that I think can have like a disproportionate impact on your sense of well-being, but instead we focus on a lot of the like pebbles that are much easier things to change. Like, oh, I'm going to buy a standing desk. Uh, when that is only easier things be like to a, change and easier to market. It's easier yeah, to make money <laughs> off of all of those little pebbles. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you don't you don't make a lot of money telling people to go walk in the park a couple hours a day, right? Right. Uh, unless you're like Barry's boot camp or something. I don't know. Um, so I think it was just like a really good reminder of how important it was to like not only get out and spend more time in nature with friends, but also to just like unplug from the constant stream of stimuli that I'm getting like nonstop when I'm like back in my normal life environment. And it's weird, too, because I can feel some of that. Uh, I can feel that calmness and that self-awareness and reflective capacity ebbing away day by day as I get further away from the trip. And so it makes me want to like implement more stop gaps to, mm-hmm. to kind of like re reassert that awareness on myself because I know that I'm not going to like consciously remember it without being like forced to re-experience it. If that makes sense. Absolutely. It's not like remembering a fact. It's, it's a state yeah. of consciousness that we're trying to stay in. Uh, yeah. that we're really pursuing with nature and community and those kinds of amazing experiences like you went on. I read the Unabomber's Manifesto years ago. Have you read that? Oh, interesting. I haven't. So obviously the guy was super effed up in the head and um, that, yeah, that seems like a fact. And he had some really, really interesting things to say in his manifesto. Uh, the one thing that really stuck out to me is he says human beings have what's called the power process deeply ingrained in us, which is, I'll cut to the chase and say like, we are, we are built to need food and water and shelter and to have that goal and then to strive towards getting that goal and then to achieve that goal. And that alone, his, his theory is that those things alone are completely fulfilling to human beings. But now that we've moved up Maslow's hierarchy of needs and for most people, like it's just a given that we will always have those lower levels filled food, water, shelter, we have all of these surrogate activities to try to achieve fulfillment. We have our careers and we have hobbies and all of these things that really, if we just do work with our hands, if we hunt, um, yeah, we really do things with our hands. It, it, it yeah. is so much more fulfilling and like deeply ingrained in us. I, the, the one question I always have with that is like, I agree to a certain extent, but then I also, find it almost impossible to get away from the like desire for advancement or progress. I think like progress is the right term. Mm-hmm. And I I always wonder if that, and when I talk about progress, that could be anything, right? Like that could be, uh, you know, material stuff, right? It's like you want to progress like the quality of things you have around you. It could be your career and like, you know, using your income as a proxy for your level of like success and, you know, accomplishments. It could be like business building and wanting to like have a bigger team to give more people jobs or, you know, for the prestige of growing a bigger, bigger business. And 
I f- it feels to me like that desire for progress and you know on, on the positive side progress on the negative side you know signaling whatever those also seem so innately human but i wonder if that is simply because we are just born into an environment of uh acceleration and signaling and it becomes so deeply ingrained in us from birth that it then becomes almost impossible to escape it i tend to agree with the latter yeah i i tend to agree I, i tend to think that we're born into a society that incentivizes growth at all costs and yeah i i've said for a very long time that growth is one of my highest values and I really wonder where that comes from. Yeah. I really wonder where that comes from. I'll, I'll dig up an article, and if I can find it in time, I'll, I'll post it in the show notes as well, on the entire uh, concept of progress just being complete bullshit. Uh, it was really great. Interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll look for it. So like the, the concept of, of growth as a good in of itself being bullshit, basically? The, de- the desire for progress. The desire for progress. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And it's interesting because like, this is always the challenge, right? Is desiring to no longer desire progress is still desiring progress, right? Yeah, it's sort yes. of like the <laughs> it's, it, you've you've just chosen a different game to try to win at. You're not actually transcending the game. You're just like picking a different one, uh, and that's that's always the challenge I have in my head. Is like, and this is a, a problem that I think like a lot of Buddhist practice run up against too, which is like the desire for nirvana is still a desire, right? And so you haven't actually transcended desire, you're just desiring something else. I think we run into this problem too with a lot of like the new forms of spirituality where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to value, you know, X, Y, Z because like consumerism isn't like serving me. And I'm not saying consumerism is good, but there it's sort of like everybody's going to pick their gods, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe the most important thing isn't to try to like transcend the popular gods, whether that's, you know, Christianity or consumerism or capitalism or whatever, but to try to just like be very intentional about which one you actually want to, uh, care about acknowledging the goods and the bads of it without like always just trying to like quit the system. Like, I don't know. These are still like ideas I'm trying to work through in my head too, which is why they're coming out very half-baked as I'm saying them. But it's like this, this very interesting challenge of, like maybe the solution isn't to try to give up on progress, but to just try to find progress that'll be the least like self-destructive or uh, like, I don't know, right? This is a, a very salient question in my mind right now. I'm trying to figure out what to do with my time next. So Yeah, I'm following. I, 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 I think that... I think that a lot of it comes down to just being aware, like more self-aware of like intentions and our reason and being conscious of our reasons for doing things. And if we notice that we're doing something out of a sense of lack, Mm. that's usually, it seems like that's like, you know, shining a light on, I don't know, like a bad thing or something we may want to actually avoid, or we may want to work on in ourselves and realize that we're already enough. But if it's coming from a pure place of curiosity and passion and interest, I can't find anything wrong with that. Yeah, that reminds me of something I read the other week that made an interesting argument I hadn't heard before, which is that any kind of mind-altering substance, whether that's like alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, psychedelics, whatever, should only be done from a place of enhancing a good experience. It should never be used to combat 
a bad experience because if you're like, if you're having a ton of fun with your friends and then you're enhancing that with alcohol, then you're like enhancing a good thing. But if you're coming home at the end of an unfulfilling work day and numbing it with alcohol, then you're, then it's like a bad thing. It's just like an interesting way of framing, uh, these sort of like mind altering states in this situation. But, you know, to this discussion also like ideologies, right? Like if you're pursuing something out of this, you know, form of curiosity, because it's very meaningful to you, then it can be good. But if you're professing a belief or whatever, because it's been forced onto you or something that you feel like you have no choice, but to accept given your environment, upbringing or whatever, then it can become a bad thing. I love it. So we got really abstract. Let's go super concrete right into men lasting longer in bed. So (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about, uh, the stamina app. So you've done, you've done, you've created so much in the sex category. It's so impressive and so interesting about you. How did this whole thing start? Like, how did your, how did your interest in this subject kind of start to the point that you wanted to create content and products around it? Yeah, that's a good question. I, so it was something that I was very interested in back in, gosh, what was it? 2016? Yeah. So 2016, uh, I got interested in the subject, you know, I was like dealing with my own issues, like feeling competent in the bedroom. And so went down, just reading rabbit hole, trying to like find any good content I could about addressing that problem. And I ran into the issue that I think most men run into go down that rabbit hole, which is most of the content is just terrible. (laughs) Like the, the books and the articles and stuff are, they're either, you know, really far down the like woo tantra realm, which I have nothing against. It just wasn't like really speaking to me or they're in this like crazy macho, like sex God, whatever style that make you just like feel more inferior. But I was reading through, you know, what other stuff I could find and kind of realizing that there might actually be an opportunity here for like good content. And I was just starting to get more interested in SEO. And so I was thinking, you know, if I actually like wrote something really good and was able to get it ranked, that's going to be like a very valuable piece of content to have created. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, this is actually kind of funny. Uh, I was talking to Monsel about it and this is back in 2016. And he was saying like, look, if this is something you struggled with and you're afraid to publish it, that might be a sign that you should publish it even more. Right. And like in general, I found that the things that I'm afraid to write about or publish tend to like do the best or like get the biggest impact. Right. I think that there's this level of like what's most personal is most universal. Uh, I, I didn't make that up. I, I think I'm getting that from. No, you made it up. You made it up. You made it up. We'll attribute it to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I refuse credit for that because I know I've seen other people use that phrasing. Uh, so whoever came up with it, it's a great phrasing because it, like, it's true. The things that feel like, oh, this is just my personal problem that no one will care about. There's probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people out there who have the same problems who would like love to hear about how you're dealing with it. So I was like, all right, fuck it. Got kind of drunk, wrote the article, published it. And then it like, it basically hit the front page of Reddit, which is, you know, just an insane amount of traffic. It was like 30, 40,000 views in the span of 24 hours. It was like sending all these people. Uh, and I was like, oh shit, I'm kind of onto something here. And after that initial like positive reaction, and honestly, the best part was that there were all these people on Reddit 
commenting about like how good it was and how useful it was and how excited they were that it was like actually going to be something health helpful. Um, I posted like a plain text version of it because like Reddit's weird about articles. You know, they don't like you promoting your articles on Reddit. So I just copied and pasted the whole thing into a long post in the sex subreddit. And for a while, it was like one of the most upvoted posts on the subreddit like ever. And they were just like, hundreds and hundreds of people saying like thank you for writing this doing i was like wow okay i like actually did this thing cool here uh and i was like well maybe i should write more of these wrote another one about like getting into some of the tantra type stuff like uh ejaculate or orgasm without ejaculating put that on reddit basically the same thing but even more so i like i still get dms on reddit four years later from people like finding those old posts there and you know having questions about them commenting about them i had like my highest traffic day on the site a month or two ago because somebody reposted one of those articles on another subreddit and drove like you know 60,000 some people in one wow. day it's just like crazy and so i was like all right this is wild like there was clearly a big need for this stuff and just by writing about it in a very straightforward no machismo bullshit i uh, no like you know pretending just like Hey, there's something I'm curious in. I had these problems too. You're not alone. Like, here's how I worked on it and what was helpful. It just got this incredible response. And I was like, wow, this is like super, super interesting. So then I started thinking like, okay, you know, what, like, what do these, like, what does this group need, right? Like what is valuable to people who are trying to solve this problem? And there was, uh, you know, one, you know, a decent chunk of the lasting longer and the multiple orgasms article talking about how like doing kegel exercises can be really really helpful for what's a a kegel exercise it's basically like that muscle that you clench when you want to stop yourself peeing so if you can strengthen that muscle you can stave off or prevent ejaculation so if you're having like premature ejaculation issues really strengthening that muscle and like building your pelvic floor can help control uh like how quickly you approach the point of no return so uh, in the article, I was talking about like, you know, one good way to practice this is to just like download one of the apps on the app store targeted at like helping women practice it. Because for women, it can be really helpful for like, you know, unwanted leaking during pregnancy and post-pregnancy. And like, uh, I think also just like vaginal health into menopause. And I'm not, I'm less well-versed on all the benefits to women, but it's like, a, it's a very common thing for women to talk about. Men don't talk about it nearly as much, even though there are tons of benefits for men too. And there was, at the time, there were literally no apps on the Apple App Store for doing Kegel exercises for men. And I was like, that's insane. Like, how is there nothing, right? And so I ended up getting connected with uh, an iOS developer who was on my email list. And we, like, whipped up an app in the span. I mean, he whipped up an app. I just, you know, answered questions and helped with design and whatnot um, and put it in the App Store And at this point, the articles were like basically on the top of Google for most of the searches related to men's sexual health. Like if you Googled how to last longer in bed, how to orgasm without ejaculating, how to do a Kegel for men, how to do reverse Kegels, like all of that, it was just like, boom, boom, number one. There was a while where my site was getting like 20, 25,000 visitors a day, like mostly to just all the sex stuff, which is crazy. Wow. And so- I, yeah, I just, I plugged the app into all of those articles, basically saying like, look, if you want to practice this stuff, I made an app so that, you know, you have like audio cues 
and stuff to tell you like timing and increasing the difficulty over time, doing normal and reverse, like a little bit of coaching on how to do it, all of it charged $3 for it and just plugged it into the articles. Uh, and that's been selling through the articles for three years now. And it's made like, I think I want to say over like 140 grand, which is insane to me. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and just like completely passive through the SEO from those articles doing well. And it's got like, and the great thing too is it's got like over a thousand reviews on the app store now. I'm bringing it up. Wow. It's like a and you're just telling people, squeeze your balls now. Release yeah. your balls. I mean, it's <laughs> pretty much. It's got like a nice design and, you know, you level up in the app. Yeah. I mean, a thousand reviews, 4.7. It's like, it's number 10 in health and fitness right now, which is. Whoa. Funny. Yeah. That's so uh, cool. And I've literally updated it like twice. That's um, so cool. In those three years. So that was just like, I, that was such a crazy thing. And it, you know, it funded me being able to go like do the digital nomad thing for a while, like lived in Argentina for four months, traveled around trying to figure out what to do next. It, in some ways led into like starting my whole marketing agency because I was seeing, or I was, I was demonstrating that if you had good SEO, you could use it to sell product. And then that made companies interested in, uh, like hiring me to help them do similar stuff for their products. So super cool, ma'am. So of all of the things that you uncovered about having better sex, having longer sex, what is the thing? And you know, I know you've talked to so many men. What is the thing that has the biggest impact that people either refuse to do or kind of mess up most often? It's definitely just communication around it. I think that there's so much, I think just like men in general are very insecure about sex and in talking about it and especially with their partners and especially, especially early in a relationship that it gets into this self-fulfilling unhealthy loop very quickly where, you know, a guy might be kind of insecure about his sexual performance because he, you know, might not be able to last that long in bed or something. And so he's like super nervous going into sex with a new partner. And then because he's nervous, his like heart rate is elevated. He's more tense that, you know, ends up leading to him like ejaculating faster. And then he's like frustrated, beats himself up. And then that like embarrassment and shame can definitely be like sensed by his partner. And then they're going to have like, some sort of a degree of like awkwardness and weird communication around it. And it's just like, it, it can really hurt a relationship very quickly. And then even in longer term relationships, right? Like, okay, they get through that phase and then they're dating for a while, but then because he's so insecure about like his sexual performance there, it just becomes this thing that kind of gets swept under the rug that they don't talk about. And then that can lead to like unhealthy communication just in general and broader parts of the relationship. Mm. Um, my honestly, my favorite emails that I get related to those articles are from like women who email because their partner found it and read it, or they found it and like found a way to bring it up with their partner. And then it not only like improved their sex life, but improved their relationship in general, because by opening the door to talk about this very personal, very embarrassing thing, it opened the door to talking about lots of other things too, because they just had improved their communication a lot through that process. So that was really like the big kind of like one of the big realizations to me too, was that so much of this stuff can be I mitigated just through being open about like these issues and struggles you're having and being able to talk about them and getting over a little bit 
of that fear uh, combined with the tactics. And I think the other thing too is like, it can be a fun bonding experience, right? For like men who are struggling with this, you know, you can, you can say like, Hey, I've found, you know, this article, or whatever, and I want to try to implement it. Cause I want to try to be like an even better partner for you in bed. Can we work on this together? And then there are all of these exercises you can do with your partner to help increase your like longevity in bed. And now it's like a fun thing you're doing together instead of sex being this almost like stressful thing that can become embarrassing for you. So hearing all of those stories is just like awesome because I still, it's kind of like a funny thing having those articles out there because, you know, it's like uh, our new employees at Growth Machine going to be weird that like their CEO used to write about this stuff, right? Or whatever. But at the same time, I, I mean, I still get really nice emails from people about how much it helps them. And like, that's just an awesome feeling to have put that out there. That's it. Wonderful, man. That really hits home for me. Uh, when Adi and I first got together, actually, ever since I had back surgery in 2013, um, for a while, I had trouble lasting. And when I got together with Adi, I was very insecure about it. And at first, she thought it was about her because we haven't hadn't really directly talked about it. And then slowly, I started to just communicate that to her, what was going on, my feelings around it. And she never once shamed me. And what that allowed me to do is, to your point, it allowed me to relax, breathe more deeply while we were having having sex. And so immediately I started to be able to last longer because I wasn't yeah. all up in my head and tense. Mix that with some like tactical stuff, like Kegel type stuff. Um, and I feel very much transformed in that part of my life. But I think it all started with communication. If I had been trying to hide that from her and had shame about it, I think uh, that it's something I would be riddled with my entire life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even just kind of like having the confidence or the comfort to like laugh at yourself and say, like, hold on, I need a moment. And then, you yeah. know, you just like cuddle for a moment or whatever and then start again. It's like even just being able to do that, I find can be like a big step forward for a lot of guys. Yep. Um, and so, so much of it, yeah, it just comes back to communication. And I think that like a lot of the tactical stuff opens the door to that. But I also think that if you don't, if you just do the tactical stuff and you never bridge the communication part, you're losing out on like a lot of the benefit to the relationship and to your sex life that can come from it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I admire most about you is how you learn and you just seem to attack different topics that you're interested in. Um, we have something in common that I didn't really realize until I was starting to prepare for this and I was finding information about you in different areas. You have somewhat of an aversion to like hacks of different sorts. Mm. So like no nootropics, no shortcuts, um, other things that I have kind of an aversion to are like overly techy exercise equipment or yep. different, different learning hacks, like speed reading and things like that. And yet you are a phenomenal learner. You're learning so many different things at, at one time and you're teaching about it. I'm curious, where did this, where did this aversion to hacky type stuff come from? Yeah, I, that's, uh, I mean, first off, thank you. It's a very nice compliment. Um, and that's something that I, I love doing, which is, I think, you know, to the extent that I am good at learning stuff is just because that is super fun to me. That's what I like to do when I'm 
bored and want to goof off. Um, the the aversion to like the the hacks and all of that, I think it I think it just came from being obsessed with it at one point. Nah. Where and you know you you there's like this funny thing with personal development where you often come to hate the things you used to be. And I was super focused on getting on, you know, finding like the best productivity hacks, entrepreneurship hacks, marketing hacks, like whatever, because I had this, I think I had this belief that I could like move faster if I found the right secret knowledge. And what I eventually realized was that that desire for hacks and quick wins that like search for secret knowledge is usually because we don't want to do the hard work that will compound really beautifully over time. And the the hacks can give you like very rapid progress, but it's often also progress that like quickly dies or is quickly lost. I think like a good example would be uh, you can like brute force a ton of language learning in a very short period of time with like Anki and Michelle Thomas tapes and things like that. And you can get like conversant in Spanish, French, like a romance language in two or three weeks if you work really hard at it. But if you do that and then do it for a month, you're also going to like forget all of it in two or three weeks. And I feel like a lot of productivity stuff, a lot of like, you know, some health stuff ends up doing similar things where if you're using these like highly specialized bits of gym equipment, you might be able to put up more weight on that gym equipment really quickly but the minute you add any variation to that range of motion by, you know, introducing a barbell or a dumbbell, you're suddenly almost like back to square one. And so you got that like satisfying quick hit of progress, but you didn't actually make progress on like the foundational thing that would right. have really gotten you a lot further. And your um, risk of injury goes up and your risk exactly. of just wanting to quit because it's too intense. Yeah, totally. I th- there's like a really good analogy for this in... I think it's the way but why article about Elon Musk where he he makes this analogy to a tree where a lot of people when they're looking at like a tree of knowledge right about some area a lot of people start at like the leaves and they look at like the little fringe whatever random things right so they look at uh you know if we're talking about diet right they say like oh you know this like paleo diet thing over here is like really interesting I'm going to like go look at that and you know i'm just gonna like care a ton about the paleo diet but they're gonna sort of like ignore the rest of this like huge tree of nutrition and health and like body function and all of that and what tim urban was saying about musk is that he looks at like the roots of the tree and the trunk and he says okay like what are all these other things built on and like where are the leaves and the branches even coming from mm-hmm. and I, you know, one thing I I realized in reading that was that like I was very much a leaf and branch person where I wanted to just like find cool random things around the edge and say like, oh, I could like try this new productivity app and that's going to like totally change my life, which it never does. (laughs) Rome might be kind of the exception. That's the closest thing to life changing app I think I've found. But uh, a lot of the other stuff is kind of like surface level, whereas the trunk of like productivity, for example, a lot of it is just like choosing the right thing to focus on. If you get that right, everything else kind of falls by the wayside, right? If you, it doesn't matter how productive you are. If you're breaking rocks every day, like you're never going to like launch a spacecraft, right? But if you're, if your target is, you know, uh, yeah, like if your target is launching a spacecraft, then it, and you're actually able to make progress on that, 
what's going to make the difference are like the the stones, right? It's the who you hire and like how much you're able to like download the skills to do that and like the funding that you have. It's not whether you use like Asana or Trello, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really easy to get sucked into the branches and leaves and ignore like the foundational harder stuff. And in so many areas of my life, I've like found places where I'm doing that. And I've just been trying to like systematically unwind that programming and say like, okay, how do I move closer to like the source of truth on this subject and get a better idea of like what this tree really looks like? Like one really good example of how you can do this is basically just like never read the news about anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because especially health stuff, right? I, I think that like anytime you ever see a news article about something related to health, the only thing you should use that article for is to find the research study it's citing and then just get in the habit of reading original published research because whatever reporter or blogger wrote about this study, there's almost certainly going to be, and like I write about health studies all the time. So I'm like criticizing myself here, right? There's going to be some slant in their reporting on it and it's probably going to help like feed some agenda. And so the only way you're going to get closer to truth is by skipping their branch and trying to go closer to the trunk with like the actual published research, right? Or like going back to the health and fitness stuff, like the the workout machines are going to be such a like leaf and branch bit of strength. But if you're doing, you know, like some of the stuff that you do on your Tuesday morning workouts, right? Or like just doing, you know, squats, deadlifts and like some bench or doing a lot of like bodyweight gymnastics stuff where you're getting like very diverse ranges of motion and like very functional strength that's going to carry over into then whatever branch and leaf you want to focus on. So it's just like, I find it very helpful as a framework, especially when I find myself getting pulled into the latest like hack or, you know, a little bit of minutia that feels like it's going to change my life, but probably isn't. Mm -hmm. This makes me think of a couple things. Number one is, uh, in reference to like the tree, the trunk of knowledge or of, of learning anything. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that all of the masters are, have the absolute simplest advice ever. I did a workout with a guy named Dan John, who is like one of the the senseis of strength and I went over to his house and we did a workout with one kettlebell and it was basically one or two exercises with some different variations. That's the, that's all we worked on for like an hour. And we did these like really slow isometric things. And I was so messed up at the end of it. It was so, it was so simple. My body felt amazing after and I just had this imprint of like, oh, it doesn't have to be complex to be effective. Yeah, that that's like such a useful heuristic. I mean, I wrote an article about this a while ago and the framework I used, I called like decomplication or artificial complexity. There's a lot of things that are at root fairly simple and easy to, they're fairly simple, but they might be difficult to do, right? They might be challenging while being like a simple process. Mm-hmm. And because they're simple and challenging, we're tempted to like add complexity to the situation, both because complexity can actually like make it easier to do it, right? It's like that workout sounds really intense. Like it would have been more fun to like play around on a Bowflex, right? Right. Um, and, but, and then we also, I think, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation with like this crazy world that we live in, we attribute value and even truth to complexity, we like want to believe 
that the more complex, hey, we want to believe that the more complex uh, something is, like the more true it is, or the more like knowledge and whatnot that's gone into it. We we like run into this issue, or we have run into this issue a lot with um, Growth Machine, the marketing agency, in that uh, half of our job sometimes it feels like is telling clients they like don't need to do. 80% of this other like nonsense that's been put out there by like random marketing blogs. And I feel like health can be that way too, where part of your job is just finding the, you know, the 80% of health advice that you can safely ignore and trying mm-hmm. to figure out like, okay, what, what are the actual simple truths that will serve me for my goals versus what is like artificial complexity that's been introduced to this world by like marketers and businesses who want to like make more money. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Has there, is there anything in the hacky realm that you feel like actually works in any area of your life that you're like, damn, that really, really works? Yes. With the caveat that a lot of the hacks that I find work really well are the ones that are like undoing something in the environment. Right. So, you know, one example would probably be like the blue light blocking glasses at night. Right. It's like, that's a hack. You can go Mm -hmm. buy them for $150 from blue blocks and you'll have them in two days and then you're just magically going to sleep better. Right. But it works and it works because it's undoing all of this complexity we've added to our environment with screens and phones and all of that. So even though it is a hack, it's really actually like re-simplifying our lives for us or uh, I feel like there's a lot of these for sleep, right? Like I've got the eight mattress, which has like the built-in cooling system. And I, I mean, for my entire life up until a year ago, I would sweat like crazy through the night and I would have to like throw out my bed sheets after six to 12 months. Cause they would just have like these disgusting sweat stains on them. Like it was really just like nasty. I couldn't figure it out why it would still happen even if the room was cold. And then I get this mattress and it like magically fixes my sweating problem overnight. Wow. Uh, yeah, which again sounds ridiculous and sounds like a hack, but it's because it, my theory is like I'm basically like all Scandinavian. So my body wants to be in the cold. It wants mm. like cold air, especially at night, and it's adapted for that. And so even sleeping in 65 degree weather in the room, if I have like the thermostat turned way down, even that is probably too warm for my body. It's probably, it probably really wants to be cold. And so I like crank the bed to the coldest setting possible. Like Cosette literally can't even roll over because it'll just like freeze her. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, but for me, it's perfect. And I sleep incredibly well on it. So it's like, that's a hack, but it works. And then I think there's other little environmental things that work but again they're like undoing complexity right so uh like hiding your alcohol from yourself like you know putting it in like the remote corner of the garage or something so there's greater barriers to entry or i know austin and carly do this with their tv where they put their tv in the garage and then they have to like take oh, it out of the garage and set hilarious. it up and want to watch something which i think is brilliant right because you still have the option to like binge on billions or whatever if you want to do that on a sunday but it becomes less the default activity because you've created greater barriers to entry for yourself yeah so I love finding those kinds of things because like they do actually work. Uh, and again, in some ways by just removing the complexity and trying to get back towards that simple life in nature with friends that we were talking about earlier. What's your process for learning when you start learning something new and maybe pick something that you just got into? Mm. Yeah. So this has evolved over time. And I think that 
there are there are kind of like levels you have to go through with this that will predominantly depend on like the amount of resources you have to throw at learning something. So uh, I'll give two examples, right? So like one, when I was first learning SEO, I the process was essentially just like... Let's just break down oh, SEO. It's, it's search engine optimization, which helps you rank higher in Google searches. It's great for websites. Exactly, yeah. So when we were talking about like the last longer bed stuff, this is how I had all of that top of Google so that if somebody searched how to last longer in bed, it was like, boom, right there. Um, so, you know, for doing that, a lot of it I learned from just like reading almost every article I could find on the subject online. And then looking at a lot of the, look, trying to figure out where there were commonalities across all of them and where the differences might be valid and might not be. And then in looking at those, trying to find like better and better sources of truth so that I could cut out more and more of the noise. Because uh, I'm sure that everybody has this experience where you get interested in a subject and then you go to Google and start looking for it. Um, which as a professional Google manipulator, I don't always recommend. It depends on the subject. Um, but you you start like digging into this and then you realize there's like a hundred different people who are talking about this and like, who do you listen to, whatnot. But from like starting to read through their stuff, you can start to get a sense of, okay, who is who is making this simple and who is like just putting out tons and tons of stuff so that they can like keep making ad revenue or something like that, right? Like trying to understand the incentives of how people are sharing information. And from that, trying to find one or two or three sources of information who you can just like go super deep on. Mm -hmm. So for me, for SEO, like, and this is still true, the best resource out there is Brian Dean from Backlinko, who has this incredible blog where he's only written like 50 or 60 articles over the last six years, because he doesn't just put out articles to put out articles. He puts out like one incredible article on a subject, goes extremely deep into the topic, explains it really thoroughly, and then updates it every like three to six months. And once I found him, I was like, oh, I can like just read all of his stuff and I'll probably get a better training or I'll probably get like better information than if I read from 20, 30 sources. Right. So that was, you know, that's something that I I think is really and really important is like find one, two, three sources of truth on a topic who you really trust and who are not like creating that artificial complexity. And a good way to find those people is honestly to see see like who everyone else converges on, right? In the sense that there's tons of other blogs and like SEO writers who reference Brian Dean and Backlinko. But he doesn't reference that many other people. Mm. It's because he's kind of like higher up on the food chain than almost anybody else. And so it's like, well, why would I read something derivative of Brian Dean's work when I can just go read Brian Dean himself? Like, I feel this way about a lot of philosophy, too, where it's like, why are you reading, you know, three or four books or blog posts of people interpreting Seneca when you can just go read Seneca, right? Or I kind of feel this way about like Four Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Like, I'm not sure there's been another good book on that subject written since he mm -hmm. wrote it there. A lot of them are kind of like derivative of what he wrote. So like, just go read that. Uh, so find that like source of truth and then studying everything they put out is such a great way to get started. Um, now evolve that slightly where I want to like find the best person on the subject and then just like hire them to teach me everything as quickly as possible. Because I know that like, you can just learn so much so fast when you have a like dedicated person that you can bounce your questions off of. And 
if you can be friends with them and ask them on a friendly basis, like that's great. And so like I've been getting into YouTube recently and there's like three people in particular who have been like absolutely instrumental to me learning YouTube, right? So uh, one is Ali Abdal, who has a phenomenal YouTube channel about like productivity, work, like all of his interests. And he's grown from like nothing to a million and a quarter subscribers in like three years. Wow. Awesome dude. Um, and, you know, he was kind enough to like lend me some of his time to just like ask him questions and everything. And that was like super helpful. Uh, and Thomas Frank did the same thing where he's also got a YouTube channel with like 3 million subscribers. And I just like asked him very specific questions about stuff. And he was again, really generous with his time to like answer them. So finding those people who you can ask stuff directly is huge. And, you know, I will say that like, because I have an audience, they're probably, they, they were more likely to respond to me than they might to a random person. Right. And like there was some, they knew who I was, they read some of my articles, whatever. But if I didn't have that, I could still just like go watch all of their videos, try to like piece it together and take notes and figure out how they were doing what they were doing. And then the guy I actually work with Michael, incredible YouTube consultant, who's like, who both can like teach me how to do everything and explain how to do everything, but then can also handle getting those things done because you eventually reach a point where you you want to learn how to do things, but if it's not the most important work for you to be doing, it doesn't make sense for you to do them anymore. So like I really wanted to learn video editing and I'm really glad I did. It's actually a lot of fun. I enjoy doing it, but I don't have the time to edit like all of my videos. It's such a huge time commitment mm -hmm. that even though I learned how to do it and had fun learning, it's not like my most important work. So it made sense to like delegate that out. So being able to do you feel like it was people. necessary for you to learn? I know this is like getting it a little in the weeds of YouTube, but no, was it no. necessary for you to learn that or you just wanted to learn it? I I think it's really important to like understand on at least a 75, 80% level how all of the processes in your life and business work. Uh, I think that, you know, I so I've made this mistake before where I just hired someone to run a system that I didn't understand and it was kind of a black box and they were just running it. And it, it eventually turned out that like they had sort of outsourced their entire job and we were paying them like a six figure salary to send one email a month and do nothing. Wow. Uh, yeah. Which is painful. <laughs> and I, after that, I think I, and you know, after that I was like, all right, make sure you understand something a little to a certain extent before you hire somebody to like run it and take it to the next level. Because then it's like you're going to have a much more honest working relationship with the person and like you can't bullshit each other, which is really, I think, important for good work. But also for me, it's just like fun to understand stuff and to be able to talk about things like to a level of competency where I can give useful feedback mm -hmm. and where I can ask for useful things. Like I've had the experience before of working on something with somebody who has no idea how what you're doing works or like how to do what you're doing. And the questions that that leads to can be like infuriating because it's like so clear the other person has like no idea what they're talking about, but they're trying to like tell you how to do your job. Mm -hmm. And I like never want to be that person. So I want to try to have like a basic understanding of how to do stuff before I like hand it off to someone um, just because I think it's going to create like a better working relationship. Um, and I think it's like, otherwise it's easy to just become like a, you know, like an empty suit manager or something. Um, and I'd rather like be a little closer to the ground on stuff, but mm. it also probably ends up wasting some time. Right. So yep. there's, there's a trade off there. Uh, yeah. So there's finding 
the optimal sources of information. There's coaching. Uh, what else is really important to you when learning something new? I think the the most important thing, honestly, and I, I should have led with this, is just like immediately starting to practice doing it, doing the and thing. getting in. Yeah, getting in as many reps as possible as quickly as possible, because it's so easy to procrastinate and just like read a bunch of books and read articles and listen to podcasts and say like, Oh, okay. I'm like, I'm getting ready to do this. And if you just do that, you're, you're just delaying the learning. Cause I, I don't think you actually learn how to do something until you start doing it yourself. So immediately finding a way for you to practice the thing and to start practicing it is essential. If you, and like, I actually don't even recommend reading about how to do something or starting to learn until you've already started to try to do it at least once or twice, because otherwise you're not going to have any framework to attach that knowledge to. Like you're not going to have any idea what somebody's talking about until you've like kind of failed the thing that they're explaining. Mm -hmm. So it was like with YouTube when I decided I wanted to get into it more, I just made like a random shitty video about doing archery in my backyard. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to make this. I'm going to throw it up. I'm going to see like what happens and then I'm going to slowly improve from there. And if you, if you go to my channel and you start with like the, the archery video and go forward, you can see every video is like a big stepwise improvement mm -hmm. in editing in like, you know, the camera quality, like everything. And that was because each video I could say like, all right, I want to improve this thing about it. I want to figure out how to do this. Like, Oh, Ollie does this cool effect in his video. Like, how did he do that? Maybe I'll ask him or, okay, now I'm like watching through this Skillshare course on how to do video editing and like, okay, I'm going to jump around in the video. I'm not going to watch this thing straight through and then go implement it. I'm going to watch like this section of the course and then go try implementing it on this video. And then next video, I'll implement this section of the course and like finding, you know, just making little one to 10% improvements along the way is such a great way to like really quickly level up your skill, uh, and like identifying where you're weak, uh, either on your own or having somebody else pointed out and then just focusing on kind of like one thing at a time, you can like pick stuff up remarkably quickly. Uh, and that's where like having that coach can be really helpful. But yeah, I mean, practice is by far the most essential part of it. And as a beginner, the gains come so, so quickly. Yeah. It's very motivating. <laughs> it makes it a lot of fun. Uh, and especially because like you're, you're putting all this information to use so quickly too, where it's like, ah, oh, I can like pull that and try that and like pull this and try this. And, uh, that was the fun thing with like doing the video editing is just like immediate feedback on what was working and what wasn't, uh, like learning marketing. It could be frustrating and difficult because you might not get feedback on if the thing you're trying is working for three to six months. Right. And so the, the, the reps or the cycles are a feedback lot loop. slower. The feedback loop's a lot slower. Yeah. Yeah. How do you know, like when you're considering quitting something, how do you know when your desire to quit is out of discomfort of like the, the necessary discomfort to grow versus you've just lost passion for something? That's a really good question. I don't know if I, I don't know if I have a great answer. Because the challenge that I always have is like, we're so good at lying to ourselves that I think we'll always invent a story about how it's out of passion or necessity or whatever that we're quitting something and giving up on something. Um, I'm trying to think of some good examples of things I've quit so that I can like psychoanalyze myself, but 
I mean, like one one example would be like I start so I started doing a podcast version of my newsletter around the same time I started doing YouTube. And I was like, okay, I'll try doing this and released like six, seven, eight episodes of it on this older podcast that I had. And it was getting like okay downloads, but it wasn't really increasing after two months. And so I just killed it. And, you know, I think that one version of me would say like, oh, I ran that test and it wasn't getting good results. And so I like nixed that experiment so I could focus on other things. But the honest part of me was like, I just didn't enjoy doing it that much, mm-hmm. right? It's like, wasn't that fun. Um, and I think that where I've gotten to now is like my my interest in problems will naturally carry me forward at like a very, very rapid pace as long as I'm interested in the problem. But as soon as it feels like I've figured out the game and like I know where the game is going, I'm I lose motivation very quickly. Mm. So let me give a good example here. So there's like uh it's kind of like a couple kinds of video games, right? That you could play, right? There's like you know, an RPG role-playing game where you're playing a certain, you're playing like a character and you're exploring a world and you're like leveling up and you're getting gear and whatever. Grand Theft Auto. Are, yeah, exactly, right? It's like, those are very fun and they've got like a story that carries them carries them along. But I often find myself falling out of those games once I understand the gameplay mechanics and I know that I can like pretty much always win in like a battle or something because I like understand how the game works and like the challenge isn't so much there. Um, but then there are other games like I used to, you know, I've played thousands of hours of, uh, like Dota two and Starcraft, which are like very competitive video games that the mechanics are not super complex either, but because you're playing against other humans and because there is a, uh, like a chess style matchmaking system where you're always playing against somebody about as good as you you're really kind of like playing against yourself and you're always having to find little ways to level up. And so you never figure out the game really mm-hmm. because you can always get better and better and better just like, you know, you could in chess. And so as long as the game is still fun, it continues to be motivating because I never totally like figure it out. And so I've felt that way even with like uh, like some entrepreneurship stuff or I feel this way with like SEO, honestly. It's like I like I know how it works and I know that if I like started a blog in a niche and I wanted to like SEO it and grow it to like XYZ number of visitors, it's like I could do it. Right. And because I know how it works and how I could do it, that game is not interesting to me anymore. Mm -hmm. And I want to like find a new, more challenging, more interesting game. And I honestly feel like my interest in entrepreneurship evolved out of my interest in video games because it was like, okay, these games stakes aren't high enough. Like what's a game with bigger stakes, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where like entrepreneurship comes in because it's kind of like a video game, but you like make money <laughs> um, uh, or you lose your job, right? <laughs> like it's very, yeah, very different. High things. risk. Yeah, high risk. Uh, and so I think that on some level, like I don't know if, I don't know where to draw the line between like losing passion and just not pushing through the suck because I feel like, as long as I'm interested in the challenge of the game, I can push through the suck very easily. But if it's a game I don't care about, even the tiniest amount of suckiness will completely derail any progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, 
I've been using this example a lot recently, like my half stained deck in the backyard where I like, you know, we, we got our deck and our fence built and then I was like, oh, we're going to stain it ourselves. It's going to be like fun and got halfway through it. And I was like, all right, I'm kind of bored of this, right? Like, I don't want to do this anymore because it's like, okay, I know how to do this. I know I can do this, but there's like almost no payoff for continuing to do it because it's not that salient of a pain point. And I can just like laugh about it when people come over and be like, ha there's our unfinished deck. <laughs> and so it's just like, I lost interest in that in like learning that game. Right. Yep. And I should have, I like, I maybe should have pushed through and I think it's easy to like judge ourselves for not finishing things. But if it's like nothing you don't, if something you care about and if there aren't any serious consequences for not pushing through the suck, like maybe you should just quit and find a game that is exciting to you. Mm -hmm. So we got to wrap it up. My final question for you is (laughs) we flew by man. Um, What's the worst advice you hear being commonly given out in terms of learning? Worst advice commonly given out in terms of learning. I mean, I would have said like go to school, right? But I think that that is actually waning really quickly, especially this year with COVID. Everyone's like, oh no, you can actually just learn stuff online and figure it out. Like it's great. Uh, I mean, I think it would actually go back to what we were talking about a little bit before. And it's funny because when you asked the question about learning, my first instinct was to talk about the research portion of it. And then, you know, I I appreciate you asking the follow-up question because then I realized I'd like left out the most important part, which is actually to like go do the thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really tempting when somebody asks like, oh, how do I learn how to do marketing, right? My first instinct is to ask them, well, uh, what books and articles have you read, right? Or like, what what have you, you know, what YouTube channels have you read? Or like, or to say, you know, go read these things. But really, what I should be saying is go try to do this thing. Because until you actually try to do it, you're not going to like have the framework to hang a lot of stuff on. And I think that there's, I think this is like, a challenge in general with like life advice and whatnot is that we often think that advice can be useful in a vacuum, but I think it can only be useful when you have an experience to hang it on. Mm-hmm. And it's like scaffolding, scaffolding yeah, in our minds. You need the scaffolding. And it's like Cosette and I uh, opened this cafe in Austin right before the pandemic hit, we literally opened it in January and then, you know, March closed everything down and we, you know, shut it down. We sold the online portion of the business. It was like, you know, that, that cafe venture was a failure because of COVID. Um, but, and I think that if somebody, and somebody could have come to me a, you know, a year and a half ago and said like, Oh, don't open a cafe. It's like tight margins. It's tough, you know, might be fragile, whatever, or like, you know, don't sign a commercial lease because of like, there's going to be all these challenges if something does happen. And I would have learned it on like a very shallow level, but now there's all of these like very deep life lessons from that experience that come from having done it. And from having made the like, quote unquote, mistake of just jumping into that without knowing what we were getting ourselves into. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that that's actually really good. And I feel like it's something we should do a little more of is just like jumping into big challenges and then like building our parachute on the way down and like learning as we go instead of trying to like prepare for everything up front. Uh, I've always had the 
best learning experiences and the most long lasting lessons from trying things, failing, trying again, slowly getting better and better at it than from like sitting down and reading a book in an article and like trying to figure it out before getting started. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny because as I'm talking about this, I'm realizing that I'm making this mistake in one area of my life right now. So <laughs> that's awesome. Go, go reorganize my, my time priorities after this, but <laughs> it's uh, it's an easy thing to forget. And I think it's because it's, mm. it's scary to like try and maybe fail and you feel like you're being productive by reading and watching podcasts or listening to podcasts and whatnot. Yes. Um, sometimes you just got to go do the thing. Yeah. A couple other reasons to just jump into doing the thing. Number one is that if it turns out that you actually don't like doing it, you can actually save yourself so much time by just getting in there and trying it out. And the second thing is the, I think the number one factor to learning is motivation. If we're really motivated to learn anything, it's just going to stick in our minds and our brain is going to make connections much faster. And the best way to get more motivated is just to start progressing. And if it's something like we, we've been talking about, like shooting a bow or doing things with our hands or hunting, those things, like getting better at physical skills feels so fun and enjoyable. So we're just going to have more motivation to do more of it. There you go. Absolutely. Yeah, I've definitely been feeling that recently with like most of my training has been focused on gymnastics stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's so satisfying to suddenly be able to do something with your body that you could not do with it, you know, a couple of months ago, like that, that's been so motivating. And that like rekindled my interest in exercise because I, I was just like getting very burned out. I like ran a marathon at the beginning of the year and then I was training for another one that got canceled for COVID. So it's kind of like blah about running and then started doing the like heavy weightlifting again. And I was kind of like blah about doing squats and deadlifts because I've been doing it for so long. And so started doing this gymnastic stuff and it's like, oh, cool. I can like do multiple, you know, headstand pushups or whatever. It's like, this is fucking neat. It's like feels very satisfying. Um, and same thing with like the riflery, right? It's like, oh, we can just nail targets at 300 yards now. Like that's sick. Could not do that four months ago. That's that stuff is super satisfying and super motivating. And you don't get that progress until you get out there and do the thing. Ironically, a D and I call that progress juice. I was talking, I was shitting on progress earlier, but we call it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I mean, love me some of that progress juice. Oh yeah. It's, It's addicting. It's good stuff. Nat, this has been fucking great, dude. Um, I, I had planned to talk about finance, status, regag stuff. So maybe we can do a part two sometime in the new year. Let's do it, man. I feel like we could go for hours on this stuff. So yep. Yeah, likewise, man. You're phenomenal on this, this platform. So thank you so much for your time, man. Um, where can people find out more about your articles and all of the content that you're putting out? Yeah, uh, natalison.com is sort of the home for everything. So you can check that out. That's where articles are, book notes. Uh, my YouTube is just under Natalison as well. And then Twitter is where I'm most active in terms of social platform. I, like I'll respond on Instagram and stuff too. But if you want to talk about anything that we talked about, definitely hit me up on Twitter. Also just at Natalison. Boom. Have a great day, man. Boom. You too, dude.